I see it works. All right. We all clean up pretty good on Easter Sunday. All right. John Wooden was the UCLA Bruins basketball coach in the 1960s and 1970s. He actually created a basketball dynasty during his tenure there. He won 10 NCAA national championships, including seven in a row. Today they call it March Madness that ends with the national championship. Before that it was just the NCAA national championships. He took 10 of those, seven in a row. Amazing. He had an 88-game winning streak. He had four perfect seasons, and he's the only basketball Hall of Famer to be inducted as both a player and his coach. Now, from his book, They Call Me Coach, I, I take this paragraph. Over the years, I have become convinced that success usually accompanies attention to detail. This makes the difference between champion and near champion. One of the little things I watched closely was the player's socks. True story. No basketball player is better than his feet. If they hurt, if his shoes don't fit, or if he has blisters, he can't play the game. It's amazing how, many, how few players know how to put on a pair of socks properly. I don't want blisters, so each year I gave an, in minute detail a step-by-step -step demonstration on precisely how I wanted them to put on their socks. Every time. Believe it or not, there's an art to doing it right, and it makes a big difference in the way a player's feet perform in practice and in game time. Wrinkles which cause blisters can be eliminated by just a little attention. Attention to detail. Attention to something very, very basic. Vince Lombardi, in July 1961, had 38 members of the Green Bay Packers football team gathered together for their first day of spring training. The previous season had ended in heartbreak. They squandered a lead late in the fourth quarter and lost the NFL championship, now called the Super Bowl, to the Philadelphia Eagles. And they thought about that loss all summer. They thought about that loss. And when the next training camp opened, the players were ready to advance in their game. They were going to work on their, their offense, their plays, their schemes, their defenses. But Coach Vince Lombardi had a different idea. When he walked into the training center in the summer of 1961, he took nothing for granted and began a tradition of starting from scratch. He famously held up a pigskin and he said to the most, he made the most elemental statement of all, gentlemen, this is a football. And Max McGee, the Green Bay Packers Pro Bowl wide receiver said, uh, coach, could you slow down a little bit? You're going too fast for us. <laughs> and in four, six months later, the Green Bay Packers beat the New York Giants 37 to nothing to win the NFL championship. Well, that's nice for footballs and socks. The basics, attention to the basics. It's critical in so many things. We have to appreciate basics. We have to be able to state and understand the basics. 
But what about the gospel? Can we state clearly the basics of the gospel? Very specifically, I would ask, what is the gospel? And we don't need 37 words for that. Can you give a clear definition or statement of the gospel? Yes, it has a broad, more comprehensive meaning, but it also has a more narrow meaning. And it's the narrower meaning that I want to look at this morning. Can we clearly and briefly state the gospel? Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. What are you going to say? What, what is that gospel that you're taking around the world? What are we celebrating? In its simplest terms, what is the gospel? What is the definition of the gospel? One short, concise sentence. As Paul Harvey would say, shuck it down to the cob. I asked the Thursday morning Bible study group to do this a few weeks ago, and here are some of the answers that uh, we got. Now, now, bear in mind, that's a group of people who have been Christians for decades. It's just gray hair in that room, godly gray hair. Jesus died for our sin, was buried, and rose again. In doing this, he became a substitute for sinners and became our redeemer. That's a true mouthful. Yeah. Here's another one. God came in the flesh, lived a perfect life, died for the sins of the world, and was buried and rose again. Another good mouthful. The good news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus the Christ. Okay? And here's another one. And I think Brian had looked ahead at what my text was going to be this morning when he wrote this one. The Lord Jesus Christ died for our sins. He was buried, and he rose from the dead according to the Scripture. There it is. If you're following in the text, turn to 1 Corinthians 15. Scholars will debate whether or not this text is actually a definition of the gospel or whether it's just a, a statement of the gospel. Either way, it's quite a statement. 1 Corinthians 15. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. Now I, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, in which you also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, now he said he's received the gospel, all right? And here he's going to state what it is. For I delivered to you first of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. Notice, first of all, that it said he received the gospel. That is Bible code for revelation, all right? Uh, God gave that to Paul by revelation. He's not making this up. He got it from God. He didn't get it from Moses or Isaiah. He didn't get it from the Dalai Lama or the Pope or Augustine. He didn't get it from the great rabbinical teachers. He didn't get it from the Essenes. He didn't get it from the Bhagwan Sri Roshnishi or the great theological schools. He didn't get it on Twitter. He didn't get it on Facebook. He didn't get it on TikTok. He got it by revelation. That which I received, God told him. Now, according to these verses, what is the gospel? There are two clear statements. 
First of all, Christ died for our sins. And secondly, he was raised on the third day. There are two statements to the gospel, not three. Many people want to put the burial in there. He, Christ died for our sins. He was buried and raised. I have three statements. There's actually only two. The other statements are in support of these two main statements. Two statements, each with two supporting arguments. The first statement, Christ died for our sins, supported by, according to the scriptures, and he was buried. That's not a separate statement, he was buried. That's support of the fact that he died for our sins. And the second statement, he was raised on the third day, supported by, according to the scriptures, and he appeared to all these witnesses. Now, I want to look at these two statements a little bit closer. We're going to spend the first part of our time here in 1 Corinthians 15. And then we're going to shift and look at the larger New Testament picture of the death of Christ. The first statement, Christ died for our sins. Does it say Christ died, period? You can answer that. No. Why not? Why isn't Christ died the gospel? Because everybody does that. And everybody here, unless the Lord returns, is going to die. So Christ died is not the gospel. And this is supported by two lines of reasoning. He died for our sins. That is the great statement. Anybody here dying for somebody else's sins? No hands going up, all right? So that's a different statement. He died for our sins. Supported by, first of all, according to the scriptures. Scriptures, that's Hebrew Bible. That's Old Testament, all right? So this was not a surprise. His death was not plan B. He died according to the scriptures. It was not an unforeseen accident. Isaiah 53, verse 4 through 10. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray, each has turned his own way. But the Lord caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, <clears throat> and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. His grave was assigned to wicked men, yet he was with the rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth, but the Lord pleased, was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, and would render himself as a guilt offering. The first statement, the first support for Christ died for our sins is that it was according to scripture. And the second support is, and he was buried. You don't bury living people. Burial is proof of death. We don't bury live people. It was, it was recorded in scripture and it was validated in history. We saw it happen. It happened in real time. We saw them bury him. And even the politicians of the day knew that he was buried, and they knew exactly where the tomb was. 
The second of the two great statements of the gospel is he was raised on the third day. And again, this is according to two lines of reasoning. It's according to the scripture, so it's predicted in Hebrew Bible, and he appeared to the list of witnesses. Hebrew Bible, Psalm 16, 9 to 11. Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For thou wilt not abandon my soul to Sheol, neither wilt thou allow thy Holy One to undergo decay. Thou wilt make known to me the path of life, and thy presence is fullness of joy. In thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. The ongoing life and awareness of Jesus after his death. Psalm 68, 18, thou hast ascended on high. Thou hast led captive thy captives. Thou hast received gifts among men. Even among the rebellious also the Lord God may dwell, that the Lord God may dwell there. Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. You see, he's alive and he's ruling after uh, the crucifixion. And second support is he appeared too. His resurrection is validated in real time by the witnesses to it. Cephas, the twelve more than 500 people at one time, most of whom were still alive, to James, to all the apostles, and to Paul himself. My understanding is that the resurrection was not really questioned in the first century. How come? Too many eyewitnesses. <laughs> it's hard to claim something when all the eyewitnesses are still running up and down the street and they saw him really come out of the grave. All right, you got it? You see the value of the statement, Christ died for our sins and rose again on the third day. In, in witnessing, somewhere in your conversation, that needs to come up. Somewhere in sharing your faith with others, you need to talk about the death and the resurrection of Christ. In missions, you can take that statement around the globe, Christ died for our sins and rose again the third day. Every climate, every continent, every culture, every class. Now you have to unpack that wherever you go, but that's the statement of the gospel that can go around the world. In worship and praise, there's a good place to start. Christ died for our sins, and he rose again on the third day. So today I've called this a celebration of the gospel. What a statement that is. I hope it still thrills your heart, even though you've got 72 Easter's behind you. Christ died for our sins, and he rose again the third day. Thank you, Lord. I hope we never tire of that. Now, let's look a little, a little deeper at what the New Testament has to say about these two primary points, all right? First of all, his death. Question, how vital to the Christian faith is the death of Christ? There are over 175 New Testament references to it. The Christian faith is, is unique in that it has personal redemption as the basis, as the root of everything. The death of Christ is the scarlet thread that runs throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. It has been said you can cut the Bible anywhere and it will bleed. His death was the subject of conversation on the Mount of Transfiguration. It is the object of study of the Old Testament prophets. Its proclamation was Paul's chief desire. 
it will be the theme of heaven's song. And according to our passage, it's the actual heart of the gospel. Christ died for our sins. His death was not an accident. We're not here celebrating some accident. That would view the cross as unforeseen. That would make him the victim of circumstances and not the victor. His death was scripturally essential, not accidental. There are no accidents in God's economy. Well, he died as a martyr. Martyrdom has an element of truth in it, as he did make some enemies for what he believed and for what he taught. But scripture portrays it as a deliberate act of sacrifice. Jesus said it was an appointment with God. The theory goes against his omnipotence, and the whole idea is just humanistic. He did not just die to be a moral influence, and he was a good moral influence. Yes, you'll have a moral influence as you display the love of God and the teachings of God, and that example should soften our hearts, but that example won't give any repentance, as the death of a parent may cause one to turn over a new leaf but it grants no power to live it. To say that he was just a moral influence grounds his death in his love, not in his holiness. So those are false theories. Christ died for our sins. How do the scriptures set forth the death of Christ? I'm gonna give you seven or eight ways, uh, biblical words, and we'll, we'll go through these very quickly. First of all, it's a sacrifice. His death is set forth as an offering for sin. For Christ, our Passover is sacrificed for us, 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Isaiah 53, 10, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days. It's a sacrifice, an offering for sin. Secondly, it's an atonement. Etymologically, it's the word kafar, which means to cover. So generally, the term is used of the overall work and death of Christ. Atonement is always by the shedding of blood. Scripture portrays his death as an atonement. Leviticus 17, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for your sins. The offering covered the sins of Israel till and in expectation of the cross. Third, it's an expiation. This is a theological word, though it's not a Bible word. The concept is biblical, but the word itself is not in the scriptures. The concept is biblical. Expiation, the guilt of sin is exhausted. God's guilt against you is exhausted. It's made not to be. Punishment is no longer demanded because the guilt is gone. God can now look favorably on you. Punishment is released, not inflicted. When you go to court and pay the fine, the penalty is exhausted. The guilt is gone. That's expiation, the expiation of sin. Four, propitiation. Because of the expiatory sacrifice of Christ, God's wrath is propitiated, or God's wrath is appeased. And now God can deal favorably with the sinner. The Latin is to cause to become favorably inclined. Propitiation means God is satisfied. God is no longer angry. 
Sin is exhausted is expiation. Guilt and wrath being appeased is propitiation. Romans 3.25, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare the righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. There's a great dilemma in Scripture, and that is we are sinful and God is holy, so God's wrath has been incurred. That is one of the great dilemmas of the Bible. Holiness demands a penalty, which is death. Propitiation says that our God is now satisfied because his son died. Christ died for our sins. God's wrath is appeased. God is satisfied. That's the meaning of propitiation. And the thought isn't just of placating an angry God, but of doing right by his holy law, thus in enabling him to act righteously and show mercy to the one that formerly was an enemy. Let's make it personal. He died on the cross, taking all the wrath of God for my sin. All of God's wrath against you, he took on the cross that I might be saved. That's propitiation. Uh, five, I think. Substitution. This is a very common one, a very familiar one. Vicarious atonement. The vicar is a substitute. So vicarious suffering is suffering endured by one person instead of and for or in the place of another. 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. 1 Corinthians 15, 3. How that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. 2 Corinthians 5, for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. An objection. <clears throat> that is not right or moral because God can't punish the innocent. Well, there's a couple of ways to answer that. Uh, first of all, you could say, well, Christ is God. So he became his own sacrifice. Or if you want to consider God and Christ as two separate persons, Christ bore the penalty voluntarily. Some of those objections are just playing word games. My great physician heals the sick, the lost he came to save. For me, his precious blood he shed. For me, his life he gave. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me and for you, right? As a ransom, a payment price which sets one free, who was held in bondage. The Greek word is lutron, payment for a slave. 1 Timothy 2.6, who gave himself a ransom for all. Redemption, deliverance by payment of that ransom price. Redeemed by the payment of a price. The word is exagorazo. It means to buy back in the marketplace. Hosea went out and bought Gomer back to himself. The homey little story is told of a little boy with his jackknife carved out a little boat from a piece of wood, put a little cloth on it for a sail. But the creek was a little big, and the boat got out too far, and the boat went downstream, and he lost his boat. Well, a few days later, the little boy was in his farm town there, and uh, there in the front of the window at the second-hand store was his little boat with a price tag on it. Somebody had found it, 
and sold it to the fellow in the store. The little boy went in and bought his boat back and got out on the street. And then the little boy held his boat up and said, you're twice mine. I made you and I bought you. Well, that's homey, but that's exactly what Jesus did with us. He holds us in his hand with great joy. He says, you're twice mine. I made you and I bought you. Romans 7, 14, we were sold under sin. Ezekiel 18, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. He has redeemed us from that curse. Revelation 5, 9, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood. God sent forth his son in Galatians 4 to redeem them that were under the law. Christ paid the ransom price to set us free to repurchase something that had temporarily been forfeited. He bought us back. He set us free as from slavery. He delivered us from danger. And the scriptures show it as a transaction, not of business, but of love. Boaz redeemed Ruth. Was that just a business deal for Boaz? It was a love affair. He married her. Redemption is an affair of love, not just business. Let me read you this quote from Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield. Now, Amos, wouldn't you like to have a moniker like that? Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield. I counted the letters. That's 28 letters in this guy's name. But he was a good theologian. There is no one title of Christ which is more precious to Christian hearts than Redeemer. There are others, it is true, which are more often on the lips of Christians, Christ our Lord, Savior. Redeemer, however, is a title of more intimate revelation than either Lord or Savior. It gives expression not merely to our sense that we have received salvation from him, but also to our appreciation of what it cost him to procure this salvation for us. It is a name specifically of the Christ of the cross. Whenever we pronounce it, the cross is placarded before our eyes, and our hearts are filled with loving remembrance, not only that Christ has given us salvation, but that he paid a mighty price to do it. Nor silver nor gold hath obtained my redemption. The way into heaven could not thus be bought. The blood of the cross is my only foundation. The death of my Savior redemption has wrought. I am redeemed, but not with silver. I am redeemed, but not with gold. Bought with a price, the blood of Jesus, precious price of love untold. Redeemed. And the word reconciliation. This is the last of our words. It means to change throughly from, to cause to be friendly again. It means to be restored to a place and a position with God that we once held. Reconciliation is to lay down our weapons. Man needs reconciliation. God is propitiated. Man is reconciled. As a friend, we became an enemy. As a law-abiding citizen, we became aliens and rebels. And due to our self-inflicted exile and voluntary straying, we must be drawn back. Man is reconciled. God is propitiated. And reconciliation terminates on the object, not on the subject. The offender reconciles himself to the one he has offended. We are reconciled to him. The one who offended 
must reconcile himself to the one he has offended. 2 Corinthians 5.18 And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. How did God get rid of his, his enemies? He made them his friends. Now, I'm going to read you a paragraph, and this is a little theological, but that's okay. We need that once in a while. And good thinking comes from good theology, all right? I'm going to put all eight of these words into this one paragraph, okay? Christ's death was a sacrifice and offering for sin. His sacrifice met the righteous demands of a holy God, and God's wrath against the sinner was propitiated, and the guilt of sin was expiated. In the metaphor of the marketplace and slave, God's price for the release of sinners was paid. We were thus redeemed from the slave market of sin when Christ paid the ransom price in his death. As Christ died in our place and for us, he is our vicar or substitute, and the work of Christ is substitutionary or vicarious atonement. Because of all this, the sinner may be reconciled to God. I realize that that's a bit theological, and that can be a bit heavy, but as George Younts, who was the bass singer for the cathedral quartet for almost 50 years, as he would often say, if that doesn't light your fire, your wood's wet. <laughs> right? That paragraph ought to spark some thank you, Lord, and some praise to the Lord, and some fresh gratitude in our heart, a celebration of the gospel. <laughs> I hope you can look at that and celebrate. All right. The second statement, as we head toward a conclusion, uh, the first statement is Christ died for our sins. The second statement is and rose again the third day. The subject of the resurrection is fundamental to the Christian faith. The resurrection is the basis of all his claims. The Bible is not true if he did not rise. Prophecy is not true if he did not rise. Christ was a liar if he didn't rise. He's either a maniac, he's a liar, or he's God. There's no in-between in those. The gospel writers are guilty of misrepresentation if Christ didn't come out of the grave. The New Testament writers made over a hundred references to the resurrection of Christ. And the resurrection of Christ is recognized by virtually everyone in, in the area of apologetics. The big issue is the resurrection because everything else hinges on the resurrection, all right? Because if his body stayed in the grave, all of his other claims are false too. But we have an empty tomb, and we can say, go look, it's empty. Check it out, it's an historical event. We have the testimony of five credible writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Paul. Multiple witnesses, Mary Magdalene, the other woman, Peter, James, Stephen, Paul, the disciples, and many others listed. The existence of the church itself would have been impossible without the resurrection. The change in the disciples who went from being timid and fearful to be willing to die for their faith hinges on the resurrection. Hypocrites don't become martyrs. There's no day of Pentecost without the resurrection. There's not a change of the day of worship from Saturday to Sunday without the resurrection. He rose again on the third day. 
The resurrection was the foundation stone of early preaching with over 100 references. The resurrection was never questioned in the first century because it was in the realm of historical factuality. The witnesses were still living. The resurrection proved he was a spotless and that he was sinless. He could be our redeemer. If he were a sinner, death would have had a claim on him and he would not have risen. The resurrection proves that God accepted the sacrifice of his son. Had he been sinless, he would not have risen and God would not have accepted the sacrifice. There was no sin to hold him in the grave. The resurrection proves his deity. Romans 1, declared to be the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. He rose again on the third day. The the resurrection proves he was everything he said he was and he could do everything he claimed. He was not a liar. He was not a good man. He was the son of God. The resurrection proves that we are justified, that we are saved for eternity. Our sacrifice was holy and pure. Uh, Romans 4.25, Christ who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. The resurrection makes him the head of the church, and he is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, Colossians 1. His resurrection is a guarantee that we also will rise. His guarantees ours. And he rose again on the third day. So what is the short, succinct statement of the gospel? Christ died for our sins and rose again on the third day. It doesn't come any more succinct than that. And our passage has these two grand statements, each supported by two lines of proof. Each is according to Scripture, and each was lived out in real time. Well, what's our response to all that? First of all, uh, good or bad, this creates accountability. There will never, ever be a day in your life, regardless of your age, where you can say, you didn't hear the gospel. You'll never be able to say that. And for every person, young, middle-aged, senior citizens, for every purpose, our life has to account for that statement. Christ died for our sins and rose again the third day. Your life must, in some way, account for that statement. Your life can ignore it. Your life can poo-poo it. You can say, that's not for me. Or you can agree with it and accept it and make him your own savior. You must do something with that statement. Christ died for our sins and rose again the third day. I called our time today a celebration of the gospel. I hope that's your response today, and I know it is for the vast majority of you. It's a celebration. It's a response of worship and adoration. Revelation 5, verse 9, Worthy art thou to, make the, to take the book and to break the seals. You're worthy to do all these things that only God could do. You who are reigning, for thou wast slain, and did purchase for God with your blood men from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. Praise, worship, adoration, a celebration 
of the gospel. Christ died for our sins and rose again the third day. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these great, great key verses in the scripture. Thank you for our wonderful Savior who died for us in our place, paid the ransom price to redeem us. Thank you, Father, that Christ died for our sins and rose again the third day. Help us to uh, sing loudly and clearly of our adoration and praise for you and the resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>